And God spake, or God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask you to help us to understand what, on the surface of it, are, are simple words, and yet, in, in so many ways, are really the heart of what we deal with. Um, as fallen people, constantly being tempted to put other things before you. And pray, Lord, that we would understand more about that, that we would have a clearer picture of our sin and the way we run from you. But even more, Lord, I pray that we could have a vision of your holiness and your grace and your mercy that would so capture our hearts that we would walk out of here tonight saying, why would we go anywhere else? Lord, I pray that the words of that hymn that we sang would be true again for us, even through the hearing of your word. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriends thee. And Lord, if only we would ponder anew, if only we would recognize that we can't even begin to plumb the depths of what it means to have a God who loves like you. Lord, forgive us for thinking so little of you and thinking of you as less than so many other things in our lives. We pray that you will heal us even through the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to talk about idolatry tonight. And if you're in our freshman small group, we talked a little bit about this because it, uh, Romans chapter 1 is one of the most important passages in the Bible in thinking about idolatry. We're going to look at that a little bit tonight, as well as Isaiah 44. But I will tell you, idolatry really is the, the, the whole story of the Bible. It is the kind of regular name that the Bible gives to our unbelief and our kind of running from God and in the, at the same time sort of making counterfeit gods to fill his place. Um, I, there's lots of, lots of different books that I've read that have helped me on this. One, of, the one quote I pulled out of one of them from Os Guinness that I thought was helpful. He says, idolatry is the most discussed problem in the Bible. I don't know, if we'd taken a survey and said, what is the most discussed problem in all of the Bible? What you would say? Loving your neighbors, maybe? It ranks up there. But idolatry is the number one discussed problem in the Bible and one of the most powerful spiritual and intellectual concepts in the believer's arsenal. Yet for Christians today, it is one of the least meaningful notions and is surrounded with ironies. Perhaps this is why many evangelicals are ignorant of the idols in their lives. Many evangelicals don't ever talk about idolatry, don't think about idolatry, and therefore their lives are filled with idolatry and they don't really know what's going on. I, I have this experience sometimes where I'll meet with a student and they'll talk about something they've been struggling with and they say, yeah, you know, I've been struggling with such and such, but I'm really working on it. And I, and I, I think I've told you this before. I always love to, to sort of ask the next question, which is, well, what exactly are you doing? What does working on it mean? And, and generally, you get no answer. What, what, what working on it generally means, for me and for you, I suspect, is, okay, I recognize this is a problem. I feel bad about it periodically. Maybe I'm even feeling bad about it more often now than I did last year. But I really don't know what to do other than maybe get an accountability group so that I can feel bad about it on a weekly basis when I meet with those people. Um, maybe that'll help. 
Um, not that, you know, not that groups of people, you know, getting together is bad, but hopefully they point you to the gospel, don't just make you feel bad to try and keep you from sinning. Um, you know, what, what does it mean to work on it? Listen, tonight we're going to learn what it means to work on it. What does it mean to actually go after your sin at the root, rather than just dealing with sort of the manifestations of it? Because so often, we're, it's like that, that um, you know, the little gopher game where you, you, know, you hit the gopher's head and they pop up and another one pops up over here. That's how we generally deal with our sin. We, we sort of smash it down over here and then it pops up over here. If we don't understand the concept of idolatry, if we don't know how it relates to worship and really how to go after it through things like the scripture and, and worship and why those things are so important, I feel like most of the time we're like dogs just chasing our tails. A lot of Christians that do that for a while and then just get really fed up and say this, this thing just doesn't really work. There's no power. There's no power often because we don't understand the heart of what's going on. God puts this commandment first for a good reason. It's because the commandment, the dealing with idolatry, is at the heart of every other commandment that we would break. Martin Luther said that before you sin in any way, before you break any of the other commandments, you first have to break the first commandment. I'll talk about why that is in a little bit. But what, is, what does the commandment teach us? It's pretty simple. You shall have no other gods before me. And I want to take a minute just to say something about how we read the commandments, because I, haven't, I know I've done two weeks of introduction. This is sort of introduction as well, but that's okay. Um, it's important to note, you remember Jesus says at one point, that what is the first and greatest commandment? And the answer he gets is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And he says, yes. What is the second commandment? To love your neighbor as yourself. Right? And then Jesus says, that upon those two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Now, when Jesus says that, that, has, that, that, that's a very helpful verse for us to understand how to read the Ten Commandments. What that means is everything that the Bible says about how we are to live is summarized by the Ten Commandments, which means that when you come to the Ten Commandments, you need to understand that they don't spell out everything that you're to do, nor do they spell out everything that you're to not do. There are, they are summary statements. Summary statements. Um, they both also forbid things and command things. So when this commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me, it's not just saying don't do that. It's also implying worship the Lord your God. There isn't one of the Ten Commandments that says worship the Lord your God, but it's caught up in this one. If you understand what Jesus says, you have to understand that the Ten Commandments are summary statements that um, they both forbid and command. They also uh, um, employ a principle, which maybe some of you English majors know. I never heard about this, so I started going until I went to seminary because um, I went to Berkeley College of Music. We didn't, I didn't really study that kind of stuff. But this principle called synecdoche. Anybody know what synecdoche? It, it means the part for the whole. It means that when the, when the commandment says, honor your father and mother, that what God is saying is, honor rightful authority. Your mother and father being the most, you know, maybe the closest example to you, maybe the most grievous way that you could break the commandment. It's why, you know, when Jesus says, do not even be angry at your brother, that you, to do so you have broken the commandment about murder, he's not making that up. 
He's not adding a commandment. That's always been caught up in the commandment, do not murder. Okay? So understand they both forbid and command. They're summary statements. And the principle of synecdoche, the part for the whole, is very important. So what is forbidden and commanded in this first commandment? Well, in short, we're forbidden to give our heart's devotion to anything besides God, whether it's a person or an ideology. There are lots of things that vie for our heart's affection. We're forbidden, as well, to refashion God into a more palatable form. Whenever you hear somebody say, well, my God's not like that, you can say, well, you've just broken the first commandment. Because you're not allowed to refashion God into your God. God is God. Now, you know, I know sometimes what they're saying is, I don't read the Bible that way, the way you do. This is the way I understand, the, I, I understand that. But that, that phraseology we use is very revealing. We often, we often are about the task, whether we realize it or not, of refashioning God um, into our own image. I think it was um, Martin Luther, no, it was G.K. Chesterton, who said that God made man in his own image and man returned the compliment. Right? And we're always, always doing that sort of thing. Um, we're always trying to fashion him usually into a more palatable deity, into somebody who's easier to get along with. You see that all the time. This is what, what's so interesting, you know, when Freud and folks like that sort of have this idea that people created God because they were scared of the universe. That sort of breaks down when you look at the God of the Bible. Now, that may be true of the God of a lot of Christians, you know, who sort of fashion this God who always likes them and wants to bless them with lots of money and a wonderful life. But the God of the Bible is more frightening than anything in creation. He's not the kind of God you would make up if you were afraid. He's a God that makes people afraid. You know, whenever angels show up, what's the first thing they say? Do not be afraid. They don't say, they're there. <laughs> they say, do not be afraid. Right? And how much more so when God himself shows up. You remember the picture in Isaiah 6 where the seraphim, the, the flaming ones, have to cover their eyes, cover their feet, because they're not worthy even to be in his presence. That's a sign of, of humility and respect, covering your feet. And with two of their wings they fly. It's an amazing picture. So if, if the ones who come to men and say, do not be afraid, when they're in the presence of God, they cover their feet and they cover their eyes. God is not to be trifled with. So we're not to make him into a more palatable de deity. And we're forbidden to make a god of ourselves or anything else, of course. But positively, we're called to enjoy our dependence upon God. We're called to enjoy our dependence upon God. It's what we were made for. We're to magnify and worship God alone. We are to love him above all other things and to receive all things from him with thanksgiving. Now, I want to say something about this, because sometimes when people hear this, on the love God above all other things, they, they sort of interpret it in sort of a creation-denying way. Uh, sometimes it's called super-spiritual talk. This idea that I, I love Jesus, and therefore I don't really like his creation or any of his people. I just, it's just me and Jesus, and I just want to love Jesus, and I can't you know, have any real friends because I'm just me and Jesus. You ever, you ever been around people like that? You know people like that? Um, C.S. Lewis actually had a, had a wise response one time. A, a little kid wrote him a letter because he was concerned that he loved Aslan more than Jesus. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever wondered, you know, gosh, I like Aslan more than I like Jesus, or I like my girlfriend more than I like Jesus. Now, you know, your girlfriend may be an idol. We'll talk about that. Um, but 
Well, here's what, here's what Lewis said to this kid. He didn't say, oh, no, well, you better quit reading my books, and I'm going to call my publisher and have him burn all of the ones that are still in the warehouse. No. He said, he said what you love about Aslan, what you love about Aslan is, is, is Jesus coming through Aslan. The reason you love Aslan more than Jesus is because you don't really know who Jesus is, but you're getting a picture of it. If there's something attractive to you about Aslan, it's because Jesus, some of his true character, is shining through. It's interesting. Think about that. This is what I think 1 Timothy 4 is saying. It says it's a doctrine of demons to reject marriage, sex, and certain foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Now, it's appropriate to fast and to save your money for... Um, for blood water, without a doubt. But it is not appropriate for you to say that food and nice coffee drinks are evil and that if I was really spiritual, I would never drink them. Because the Bible says that's a doctrine of demons. It may seem spiritual. And it seems spiritual in Paul's day. That's why he has to write about it. It may seem spiritual to say, well, if, I, if I'm really holy, I won't get married. Paul says that's a doctrine of demons to teach people that it's more spiritual to not be married. You may say, well, what about where Paul says it's better to be single than to be married, 1 Corinthians? And I will say, I'm not going to answer that tonight, but you can go to our website and find a convo where I talk about that very thing for a whole hour, so I'm not going to possibly talk about it. Or you can get coffee with me, we'll talk about it sometime. There's an answer to that. He's not, he's not contradicting himself. Um, but here's the thing. Beware of this sort of super spirituality which claims to love God, claims to really want to be spiritual, but despises his creation and gifts. We have to take God as he is. And he is a God who loves creation. He is a God who gives good gifts to his people to enjoy. But he recognizes and he knows that we would love to separate those gifts from God. And so he tells in 1 Timothy 4 that we are to receive all of those things with thanksgiving. I'm going to say a little bit later, receiving things with thanksgiving, praising God, thanking him, is one of the best antidotes to idolatry in your life. Idolatry happens when we disconnect the gifts from God himself. Well, what are idols anyway? Let me, let me get into a little more detail about that. Like I said, idols are the main category the Bible uses to describe unbelief. Or, and, and really think about it this way. It's a counterfeit for God that we use to avoid dealing with the real God. Idols are counterfeit gods that we can use to avoid dealing with the real God. Uh, the Bible teaches, you know, that worship is inevitable. The Bible never talks about, if you're going to worship, hey, consider Jesus. Never. If, if, you're, in the, if then you're in the market for worshiping something, you know, consider Jesus. No. It assumes that you're worshiping something. Why? Because you were created to worship. You were created. Every human being was created to be in a relationship of dependence and love with God himself. The one who is worthy of all worship. The one who is worthy of our hearts, not just allegiance, but adoration. The truly beautiful one who rejoices over us with singing. This is what we were made for. And the fact is, if we, if we don't worship God himself, there will be something that will fill our hearts. There will be something that we'll, that we'll give our lives to. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. Look at this uh, in chapter 1 of Romans. Some verses where Paul talks about this. Now, I underlined the ones we were focused on, but I wanted to give you the context, so I printed a few of the others. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men 
who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now notice the connection. He says, the things that they do that people look at and say, oh, those are bad things those people are doing. Paul says that those are, they flow out of something that's happened before. They flow out of refusing to give glory to God. That the, the, and, and this relates to all of us. The way we live, the way we relate to other people, always flows out of how we relate to God. There, there is no merely horizontal life. It's always connected to God and what we're doing with God. Idolatry, not worshiping the true God, will always have an expression in your life. It's inevitable. You can't avoid it. John Calvin said that the heart, the human heart, is like an idol factory. You know, you don't even need anybody to sort of put things up in front of you. You, you manufacture them yourself all the time. We're always putting our hearts um, after other things. Mankind, it says here in, in Romans 1, both worships, and the word here means a literal, like an internal heart adoring. And Romans 1 says that, that in, in idolatry we serve or give ourselves to our idols. I think, you know, without a doubt, one of the, the best illustrations of this is Tolkien's depiction of Gollum. Right? It, it both is his precious. He just loves to think about it, dwell upon it, cherish it, savor it. Even, even in meditating upon it, you have this picture of meditating to such that he, he almost tastes and enjoys it, even when he doesn't have it. But it also drives him insane and directs his will and makes him do things that in his right mind he would never do. You know, it's, have you ever had this kind of experience? Where, where you do something that you thought, I never, I, I never would have thought I would have done this. I can't believe I've done this. Whenever I have those conversations with students, it's always, it always goes back to an idol, sometimes that they didn't see, that was much more powerful than they thought. And, and you know, sometimes the idols bless you because you're serving them well and they make you feel great. Often, when you don't serve them well, when you don't give them what they want, they kill you. They, they, they bring you into such despair. They, mankind worships and serves idols. And the other thing about idols is they create delusional fields. And again, you see it with Gollum, but you, you see it um, so clearly here in Isaiah 44. Worshiping idols is really insane. And, and you, it's, it's easier to see that when you're talking about somebody cutting down a tree and taking half of it and making a little wooden idol 
and taking the other half and using it to, to roast their food, and then bowing down to the little wooden idol and saying, save me, you're my god. That's obvious and, and ridiculous, and it seems that we're sophisticated, we wouldn't do that sort of thing, okay? And that's why we think that idolatry isn't really our issue, because we think that that's the heart of idolatry. We don't realize that you can make idols out of any good thing. And as a matter of fact, the better the gift, the more powerful the idol. Isaiah 44 puts it this, this way, talking about the one who worships idols. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god. His idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Listen to this verse. He feeds on ashes. The one who worships idols feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Isaiah is saying that when you worship idols, you can't even see straight. You can't think straight. You can't even say this thing in my right hand is a lie. Idols are ridiculous. Only a deluded heart could explain the kinds of things that we put our hope in, right? I mean, sometimes you can get together with your friends, you can see it, and you can laugh about it. But most of the time, it's deadly serious. But there are those times, those, those moments where you say, you know, I, I remember reading a, a book, a guy was saying, you know, why is it that if you're sitting, let's say you're having a first date, okay? Or it's probably lunch. It's probably not a date. You probably wouldn't call it a date for another month or two, probably. Um, I know that. I, I was single until I was 33, and I was always trying to figure out how could I ask somebody out on a date while still pretending that I didn't really care if she said no. <laughs> right? How can I say it? Right? So anyway, but let's say you're, you're, you're at a, a first, you know, hanging out, is what you might call it. And... You take, you know, you take your glass of water and you start to take a drink and it dribbles all down your shirt. And you're mortified. Now why? Is that really a big deal? Is that a big deal? Did you do that on your first No. You did? Oh, okay, good. And that's why you're here today. You know, to have a testimony and go home, amen. Um, no, we, you know, you're, you're mortified uh, because, as ridiculous as it sounds, you put your hope in your ability to impress all the time. And, and you see here for a moment how fragile that really is. Just a moment's inattention, and, and the charade has been exposed. And what do you do? You, you go home and, you know, depending on how powerful that idol is, you may go home and be like, oh, I, I could never show my face, I need to transfer, you know. Uh, you know, I don't know. You, you laugh at that. But those kind of things actually happen. People do insane kinds of things because their idols just will not give them a break. And as the casinos know, the most powerful idols, the most powerful addictions are the ones that actually do work every once in a while. It's really hard to quit being a people pleaser if every once in a while it makes you feel really good. It's really hard to quit putting your hope in your gifts when it's the only reason you think that people involve you and invite you to be part of things. This isn't an easy issue. It's one thing to sort of name the idols and see them. It's quite another thing 
to begin to have them rooted out of our life. I'll say one other thing about sort of what are idols before we look at how do we understand our own idols. And it's this. Idols come in pairs. Idols come in pairs. There are generally idols that will affect your sense of making sense of the world. You kind of have a need. You know, you learn a lot about needs in sociology and psychology and all these different classes that you take. Um, and, and often they have good observations sort of at this level, but they don't get to the real heart level, which is your need to worship. But you do have a need to make sense of the world. Okay? You have a need to give your life to something. God made it that way because he wanted you to be involved in his kingdom and to live for that. You have a need for something to capture your heart's affection. And, and you can't deny your humanness forever by sort of living without those things. Now, most people in America, see, they basically have this kind of deistic idea of God. They believe that, that God created everything. It, and, and they don't think much about it, um, but it gives them sort of a sense of the rational explanation for why we're here. But it's not what they're living for. And it's not what really fills their hearts when they're free to think about whatever they want. So they have sort of this faraway idol that's a deistic God who kind of explains why we're here, but he doesn't ask anything. He doesn't really fill your heart with any kind of joy. Generally, what you're living for and what's filling you with joy are near idols. And they have to, you have to kind of have the far idol for the near idols to work. But the near idols might be things like causes, different causes that you give yourself to. Um, or they may be, you know, people-pleasing or um, some kind of gift or sex or you know, all kinds of things. That, that we give ourselves to, entertainment. I, I remember, what, I think one of the most revealing statements I ever heard Woody Allen um, give. One time he was being interviewed by Bob Costas, and Bob Costas asked him, Woody, what do you believe in? And he said, I believe in the power of distraction. That's an idol. I believe in the power of distraction. Distraction is what I count on to get through the day. Distraction is how I get through this world. Distraction is where I find joy. Ugh. It's so empty, but yet at one level, it works for him. Most Americans, like I say, are basically deists who are living for work or comfort or something like that. Turn, turn this little page over. Well, how can we identify our idols? In a nutshell, it's this way. If you want to deal with idols, first you have to name them, then you shame them, and then you rejoice in the true God. Now, how, how are we going to name them? How are we going to understand where they are? How are we going to identify our idols? The first thing I would say is to use diagnostic questions. And I, I listed a few of them for you, but there's a lot of other ones you could probably think of or maybe your friends could help you think of. Um, again, Martin Luther says, A God is that from which you expect all good or blessings and that which you take refuge in when distress comes. So it's helpful sometimes to think, what are you really counting on? What are you really counting on to come through for you? When the chips are down, what are you, where do you run for refuge when things are difficult? Those are revealing questions that expose the direction of your heart, that expose maybe what is functionally operating as your God. When troubles run, where do you go first? What are the things that you've done or the things that you've not done that you think prove you don't deserve trials? Often when trials come, you feel welling up within you this sense of it's not fair. And, and if, if God were to question you right then and there, why isn't it fair? You would probably have a list of things that you could tell him. Well, after all, I've suffered so much already. 
Or, I haven't done anything wrong. I've never killed anybody. I really mean well. I try my best. All of those things. See, when troubles come, often idols are exposed. It's like, you know, Bill Cosby. I, I used to love Bill Cosby when I was little. I used to listen to these Bill Cosby records. I, you know, I had a record player that you know, could play five records at once. You'd stack them together, and they would drop down. They're all scratched beyond belief. I can't even play them anymore. But there was this one uh, little routine that Bill Cosby did about cream of wheat. And, he's, you know, he's always talking about how he was convinced that his mother was trying to kill him by putting lumps in his cream of wheat. And his mother would give him the cream of wheat, and it would look fine, and then he'd pour that milk in the cream of wheat, and all of a sudden all the lumps would appear. It's like, ah, oh, there they are, trying to kill me again with this cream of wheat. You know, that's the way trials are, function that way. They, they, they expose things that you didn't even realize you were trusting in until either they're gone or they're threatened. Um, another... another um, diagnostic question is, what do you think about when you're free to think about whatever you want? What do you dream about? Another way you can identify idols besides diagnostic questions is filling in the blanks. Uh, again, I put just a couple here, but you could probably come up with more. How would you answer this question? Life only has meaning if. What? Life would not be worth living without what? What would you answer? Another, another helpful way to get at what are the idols in our hearts uh, is to examine problem emotions. Do you ever have emotions that you feel are really out of proportion to what they should be? Um, overreacting emotionally is often a clue that one of your idols is being threatened. Is your life filled with boredom? And, and you probably, most of you guys are probably too, not bored, you're probably stressed beyond belief. Um, but if your life is filled with boredom, often it's because your idol is really control. And you've manufactured a life where the only things that you let in are things that you know you'll be good at and you can do well without having to risk. Right? See, sometimes the problem emotions aren't worry. Sometimes it's, I'm just bored. Well, gosh, the kingdom of God should be an adventure, but it's obviously not what you're living for. You're living for, for comfort. And, and you're succeeding pretty well. Now, I'm sure God will shake it up because he's a good God. Um, but maybe that, that would be a key to you about what's going on. Are you filled with worry? Maybe you have a control idol and it's not working. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you're trusting in yourself, but you know that you're not really up to it. You know that you're not, you can't really handle what you're hoping for. Um, what do you fear? What are you afraid of? Tim Keller, pastor I like to listen to sometimes, said, dig up your fears and you will find your idols clinging to their roots. Following that, you know, listen to your story and follow the trail of pain. But if we had time, it would be glorious to sit and just hear people's stories. And, and when you hear somebody's story, when somebody talks to you about their story, often you'll hear things that you're like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if there's more to that. The way that person said that, I wonder um, about this. And, and you probe those things and you find, you know, stories of deep pain and hurt and disappointment. And always, always surrounding those, that pain are commitments that people have made to never let themselves be put in a place where they'll be vulnerable or able to be hurt like that again. Listen to your story. Follow the trail of pain that will usually lead you to idols, to core commitments. You said, okay, well, I know God says I'm supposed to weep with those who weep, but I'm not doing that again. 
can't. Can't do it. I know that I'm supposed to, to live by faith and trust him. I can't. I've got to cover my bases. What if I get betrayed again? What if I what what if what if I you know I have no money and nowhere to sleep and you know I'm out on the streets again? Whatever it is. And then, and then the last point on this is dig deep. See, at one level, you know, if I asked you, gosh, what are you struggling with? You could probably come up with some things. Well, I don't really like the fact that I can't say no very well. And, and that's that's somewhat helpful to know about yourself. But, but what I would encourage you to do is to dig deep. Why is it that you can't say no? Is it because you have a Messiah complex and you feel like you're worthless unless you're involved with everybody's life? Or is it because you're just so desperate for approval that you're afraid nobody will ask you to do anything again if you ever say no once? See, the way you're going to go at those root idols are very different. And so if all you've ever done is sort of looked at the superficial things in your life that you don't like, but you've never tried to understand what are the core commitments that are driving these things up here, you're not going to get very far in, the, in, in sort of growing in Christ, actually. Dig deep. There are idols deep in your heart, core commitments. But then understand this. How does healing come? How does healing come? Let me tell you. If, I mean, Isaiah 44 is pretty depressing, isn't it? You can't even see the thing in your right hand and say it's a lie. Well, what are you going to do? Well, you can't fix your idols, but you can be delivered from them. And what the gospel is about is the good news that God comes to the rescue. That God doesn't stand way over here and say, well, when you can get that stuff straightened out, not just the external things that bothered you. See, at one level... If you've only ever stood, understood Christianity to be about doing the right things, to hear a talk about idolatry is devastating. Because, good night, how can I change my heart? How can I change what my heart adores? Maybe I can discipline my tongue and not gossip. But how can I change my heart to where I love the people that I'm tempted to gossip about? You can't do that. You don't have the power. And it will either drive you to God or it will drive you insane. It will drive you to, to leave Christianity and say, I don't want to have anything to do with this, unless you understand that you have to be delivered from idols and God is in the business of rescuing us from our foolishness. And he does it in two ways. He does it by exposing how empty and weak your idols really are. They don't work. This is Isaiah 44. You see this so clearly. He's saying to the idol, look, what are you thinking? This is crazy. The thing that you're worshiping came out of a block of wood, half of which you used to roast your food. And you need to do that to your idols. Yours may be more sophisticated. They may be, you know, trying to get people to like you. In which I'm saying, you're putting your hope in what people think? People? You're putting your hope in what people think? Which changes every day? Don't you remember when you were a little kid and you had, you know, several, several good girlfriends and then a new girl moved in the neighborhood and all of a sudden they said, we don't like you. And you're putting your hope in being able to overcome that and change that? Getting people to like you? Come on. It's no wonder your life is full of worry and insecurity. You're putting your hope in your looks? How long is that going to last? How long is that going to work for you? You're putting your hope in your athletic ability? Well, you know, wait till you rupture your Achilles. Wait till you, you know, I've done that. That's fun. That will change everything for the rest of your life. 
on and on and on again. So you, you pour, you know, you say, listen, you, heart, why are you putting your hope in this? It doesn't work. You have to learn sort of how to do gospel arguing with yourself. And you see this in the Bible. You see it in these hymns. We, we, we sang it. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Don't spend all your time thinking about, oh, my life would be so great if only she liked me. No, ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Yeah, she may be a good gift to the Lord. I'm not meaning to deny, deny that. But I am saying what you need to be pondering is who our God is. Because it's only in light of who he is that your idols appear as empty and as worthless as they really are. And God is constantly doing this two-pronged attack on our idolatry. He is exposing them as empty and worthless. They don't really work. And then he's saying, but I am the one you were made for. See, here's the thing, guys. Whatever it is that you're trying to get from your idols, whether it's hope, security, comfort, peace, life, excitement, joy, you already have, whatever it is, you already have those things in the gospel. Are you trying to get approval from other people? It's going to do no good to tell your heart you shouldn't care about approval because you were made to bask in the approval of another. But that's what God gives you in the gospel beyond anything you could ever get from other people. God gives that to you. You already have it. And the reason you think you need it so desperate from these other people, such that you're willing to lie, you're willing to betray other people so you can get the approval of these people, it's because you've forgotten what you already have. And so ultimately, you see, worship is the problem. We worship things other than God, but worship is actually where the healing comes from. It's being reminded of who God really is as God reveals himself. It's why we sing so many of these hymns that are about the character of God, rather than just us saying to God what we want to do. There's a place for that. There's a place in the Psalms for making vows to the Lord and whatnot, but it's, it's, it's a much smaller place than the revelation of who God is. Because what really heals you is to be reminded of who God is. Listen, the reason you sin in any particular way is because of either fear or pride. Always. It's either because of your fear or your pride. And let me tell you, the only reason you're fearful and the only reason you're prideful is because you've forgotten who God really is. And it's when you forget who God really is, you think that he doesn't care or he's not powerful enough to take care of you, so when you forget who he is and reimagine him to be something less than he is, that all of these other things that you struggle with seem so reasonable. Well, God can't really want me to suffer. Maybe he, he wanted it to turn out better for me, but he really couldn't. This is what Abraham thought, right? Well, I know God's promised to give me an heir, but goodness, I mean, I'm 100 years old. God has limits, right? I'm going to take matters into my own hands. It's always that way. We forget who God is. And it drives us to running after other things that we think will work better. But the hymns, the hymns are so helpful to me. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in thy behalf appears. It's this idea, you know, take the truth. Listen, remember Romans 1. They exchange the truth for a lie. The way of healing is actually to reverse that. To exchange the lie for the truth. Where do you get the truth? from the Word, from the sacraments, which are the gospel preached in a picture, prayer. We gather together, we worship, we sit under the Word of God.
Because the truth is what changes us. The truth is what changes our hearts. And this has huge implications for community. This is my, my last little point. Again, this, this, we're really thinking about the Ten Commandments for community. This has huge implications. If you want to be one who actually encourages people, rather than just flattering people, you have to understand idolatry and the way it works. Because you have to get to the point where you can speak the gospel into their fear that's driving them to idolatry. I always talk about this in premarital counseling. But I want to talk about it, I, I want to talk about it more because it's the way you can encourage your friend. There's fears that are driving them to things that you know are so destructive. But the only way that they're going to be able to let go of those things that seem like life to them is if something more beautiful and believable comes along. You know the phenomenon of being on the rebound? Right? You never get over one love until a new love comes along. You will not release your grip on your idols until you see God for who he really is. And it's a constant battle. But take heart. God is the one who's doing battle with your heart. Do you think of worship as spiritual warfare? It is. It's God coming after your heart to open your eyes to see reality. Worship should never be about leaving the world out there. It should always be about coming to our senses so that we can integrate everything that's going on in life. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you are the beautiful one, and yet, Lord, forgive us. For, forgive us for not believing that. Forgive us for not pondering anew what your love is about and what you can do, and instead turning quickly to things that seem more secure and more controllable. Lord, it is frightening to put our hope and our trust in you because we don't control you. And yet, Lord, you are the only master who died for us. Our looks didn't die for us. Our friends didn't die for us. Our work didn't die for us. But you died for us, Lord. And may, Lord, as those idols look so beautiful, may the reality, the truth, that you died for us, open our eyes, restore our sanity, bring us to our senses, not just for ourselves and our comfort, but for our community. Lord, that we could be a community that is free, that is free to be who you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name.